1 John follow similar patterns. And so last week I, I mentioned the idea that John is dealing in these apparent dualisms. But the, not that he's in any way affirming a, these dualisms, but in all of the dualisms, he's describing that one will overcome the other. And so rather than to refer, refer to them as dualisms, we could just talk about it as opposed pairs. But of course it may be that the Gnostics, and I think the Gnostics, I made a huge claim last time, are just prototypical false teachers. That is, that Gnosticism is a handy uh, heresy, if there's such a thing as a handy heresy, uh, in that it is a kind of summation, I think, of the, the tendency of all false teaching, of all heresies. And one of the characteristics that we see from Genesis on is that if, uh, in a heretical teaching or a, or a misunderstanding, there will be some form of dualism. Um, and John then is, we believe, taking on the Gnostics. He's using their language. It may be right out of their language, but he's not affirming these dualisms, but he's going to talk about light and darkness. But, of course, in John, the light penetrates the darkness. The light has victory over the darkness. Uh, we'll talk about life and death. But again, death is not an absolute category. In most religious systems, uh, death is then an absolute. Uh, even in modern philosophical thought, in Hegel and Heidegger, that death is you know, something that you can, uh, if you're held out into the death and nothingness, you, know, you come into contact with the absolute. But in John... And I believe in 1 John 2. Did you remember what I said last time about resurrection in 1 John? It was so exciting. I know many of you may have called home after. Uh, there is no... Uh, some have said there is no clear teaching of the resurrection. I, I think that as we go through it, we'll see that's not exactly right. That even in the first chapter, he's talked, he's referenced resurrection. Clearly in the Gospels and in Revelation that there is life and death, but death as a category is emptied out by the death and resurrection of Christ. So those of you who did the Gospel of John class uh, with me, you know that uh, death then is where the glory of Christ is ultimately revealed. The whole Gospel is kind of a long passion narrative in which uh, death is the worst that Rome, the Jews, the you know the Jewish teachers can do to Jesus, and yet he conquers death on the cross, confirmed by the resurrection. John's going to use the language of spirit and flesh, but again, not as po opposed dualisms, as if the spirit and the flesh are you know ontologically separate categories, but rather that the spirit then. Uh, and especially in the incarnation of Christ, has come to abide with those who are embodied. And so I'm giving you these opposed pairs, but in each instance, victory, resurrection. What would be the resolution to the problem of flesh and spirit in John? John is the one where we get this motif 
very strongly, and it's a common motif. But actually, it doesn't occur that often in the New Testament. And that would be new birth, right? Andy was about to say it. I could see it. Um, John was going to talk about above and below, but you know, think here in the beginning of the gospel when he talks about Nathaniel, and Nathaniel is one like Jacob. Remember Jacob's ladder uh, that bridges heaven and earth. Well, Jesus himself is the one. You know, you'll see greater things than these, he says to Nathaniel. Uh, and the idea is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the bridging of above and below, of heaven and earth. John will talk a lot about truth and falsehood. Um, But of course, here he's not talking about gnosis. He will talk about knowing Christ, but he's not going to talk about a secret knowledge uh, or a possession of the knowledge the way the Gnostics will. He's just going to say that we witness to the truth. The truth is a personal truth. And then the last set of opposed pairs would be belief and unbelief. And this is determinative. Actually, there's more than this in John. Can you think, I didn't say all of them. What would be another opposed pair that you find? Even right here, we just read it in chapter 1 and I didn't say it. Uh, Anybody get it? Hate and love, right? Uh, that, you know, he who uh, hates his brother can't love God, that uh, if you walk in darkness, uh, part of the walking in darkness is the, the, the attitude that you're going to have toward the brother, that it's going to be, uh, you're going to be alienated from your brother. So the question uh, that John is, I think, addressing Uh, in this first chapter and in the gospel, you know, what constitutes the darkness? Clearly sin does. But he's going to say, he's going to specify the working of sin. Um, And he equates sin with hatred, unbelief, uh, the, you know, uh, flesh, the below, the death, the darkness... And so once you take all these categories into account that they're all done, we recognize these are not absolute categories, but this is a way of of talking about the world constituted by human beings. Uh, I Actually, I had a clever title. I didn't tell you my clever title. Uh, the, The one I sent you out was Walking in the Light, but I came up with another title, a subtitle, Believing with Your Body. You like that? Uh, that is normally we think of belief as something we do in our heads but the way that John is going to talk about it is that walking is a form of believing and you cannot walk uh, in the darkness and believe in God and therefore and be you know imagine that you're in the light he's saying those that that's a lie that people who think that way are deceived. And so the way we live or the form of life or the set of practices which constitute our life, and maybe that's a funny way of talking about our lives. Are our lives made up of a way of walking, of a set of practices, of a, 
You know, I think in the end it is. That, uh, and some people practice, you know, can you walk uh, or practice a lie? Well, apparently you can. You can institute practices in your life that are deceived. And so John provides several markers of this deception of, you know, what you do with your body is one of them. Uh, that what you do with the fellowship of the saints is another. What you do, your attitude towards your brothers. Uh, so those who say, well, it doesn't matter. And by the time we get to chapter 2, we're going to see that some have separated themselves out from the fellowship. And, you know, we don't quite know, are they full-blown Gnostics? Maybe, but... Uh, at any rate, they've separated. They're still calling themselves Christians, but they've disfellowshipped themselves. And so John's point is, well, if you do this, if you claim that you're a good Christian and you oppress other people, you disfellowship the saints, you hate people, uh, you, you know, all the markers, he said, you're a liar. Uh, at one point, he's going to equate the position of these people with the Antichrist. And by the way, in the New Testament, the harshest language doesn't fall upon pagans who have never heard. The harshest language falls upon supposed Christians who, in fact, are fake Christians, who are liars, who uh, the truth is not in them, people who walk in darkness, even in the judgment scenes in the Gospels. You know, the judgment scenes actually consist of, they're all people who have heard, and the people who get judged harshly are precisely the ones who think that they're, you know, righteous, that, you know, we've, we've, uh, we've done everything we can do, and they're surprised at the judgment. And so, too, John's harshest words here are for these heretics, people who are claiming to be Christians, uh, and... He's saying, well, no, you're, you're walking in the darkness. You're hating your brothers. You're disfellowshipping the saints. Uh, and that, then, is, is uh, uh, not to be walking in the light. And so, th if you think here of what sin amounts to, and this is, I said this a little bit last time, sin is always a disconnect. Sin is always alienation. Sin is always separation. But this system of false teaching takes alienation, separ separation, dualism, and reifies it. So it's separating the body and the spirit. Uh, it's separating, you know, those who have the secret knowledge from those who only know Christ in the flesh. Uh, so if we say, John says, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And, and then goes on and says, we have fellowship uh, with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin if we walk in the light as he himself is the light. And so here's language of atonement. But the atonement, the atoning power of Christ, is directly connected to a set of practices, to a manner of walking. Uh, that for the atonement, I'll say this, and then if you want to raise your hand, say, wait a minute, that can't be right. But let me say it first. 
The atoning power of Christ to be effective in your life requires that we must practice the truth. The atonement is of no effect if you do not practice the truth. Isn't that what John is saying? The, the atonement puts us into a manner of life, a set of practices uh, that is counter to uh, the lie. So truth is a practice and lying is a practice. And both ways are ways of walking or living. So we can live a, a lie or we can live a truth. And of course, this is the thing that John is noted for. There's no middle ground with John. As I say that, I'll qualify it, though. Because in chapter 1, there is, you know, a kind of middle ground. He says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. Uh, If you sin, you're walking in the darkness. But then he gives us the middle ground, and this is where we'll end up tonight. And, And that is, he says, well, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. But if you confess your sin, then... Uh, you can continue to walk in the light. So the the Gnostic teachers, I think, are doing what people tend to do even today. They would disconnect redemption from redemptive practices. Let me state that differently. They would disconnect salvation from salvific practices. Salvation is a set of practices that we institute. Salvation is a manner of walking that we put into action. Uh, Salvation is a verb. So some would disconnect believing. In other words, they'd say, oh, we can believe in our head. And they would disconnect that with what they do with their body. You know anybody like that? Uh, Well, that's a whole swath of evangelical Christianity today. I think it's in danger of becoming another form of false teaching, another Gnostic understanding. Um, and, and by the same token, some would disconnect lying with a set of practices. Uh, that is that uh, the whole manner, this whole dynamic then, is a kind of deceived dynamic. So John states clearly that the the practice of truth is a practice which binds us to the fellowship. That's always the goal, isn't it? We did this with Paul, we're doing it with John. What's the end of all this? Going to heaven when you die? I don't know that that appears anywhere in John. Uh, What's the goal? It's the fellowship. It's to be joined together. Uh... He says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And that's the sign that you're walking in the light, is that you are in fellowship. And the sign that you're a heretic and a false teacher is that you disfellowship. Um, So the nature of the false teaching, and I think we can just always say this, we can come up with a kind of absolute rule, that false teaching denies you know, it, it breaks our fellowship with God, it breaks our fellowship with the, the koinonia, uh, the body of Christ. Um, so it seems like a very basic idea that John is presenting. But what I would say, yes, it's a basic universal idea that theologies, even today, false understanding are premise on that uh, 
saying what we do does not affect our relationship with God. That's a lie from hell. No, what you do affects your relationship with God. Think about your marriage relationship. Can you have a good marriage and treat one another, you know, in a in a in a despicable way? No, that's an impossibility. So too our covenant with God. What we do with our bodies is considered by some irrelevant John is saying no that you've got to practice this. And so the false teaching that these things are disconnected are built upon a set of false premises. One, that the body and the spirit are separate realities. John is going to say, no, that's not true. That interior and ex- exterior are realms apart. No, that the inside and the outside are not disconnected. That faith and doing things are completely separate. That faith, you know, is what we believe in our heads and doing stuff is what we do with our bodies. Thus, my clever title, we believe with our bodies. That belief is an action. Belief is doing something. Some of the early Gnostics, do you you know what antinomianism is? That we still get this in a lot of Protestantism, and that is that it's anti-law that it's saying salvation, you know, grace is over and against the law, and the law was based on works. Well, again, that's just a blatant false understanding of the function of the law in the Old Testament. Nobody was ever saved by works of the law. That's not a teaching in Scripture. But many have taken that understanding today, you know, with... uh, in a, in a Protestant Christianity. But also these early Gnostics, I think, were, were guilty of doing the same thing. John Stott has described this. He says, They thought of the body as a mere envelope covering the human spirit, which they further maintained was inviolable. It could not be contaminated by the deeds of the body. Others, according to Irenaeus, taught that if a person had become truly spiritual... He had progressed beyond the possibility of any defilement. You could, they said, be righteous without necessarily doing any righteousness. Does that ring uh, true for anybody? Any groups you know that might teach that? Is there anyone that might say, oh, we are made righteous even if we don't do righteousness? Are you saying Irenaeus did say that, or he wasn't? Irenaeus is, is condemning this false teaching. Irenaeus, by the way, I'm, I'm going to reference Irenaeus a couple times here. Irenaeus is the, the student of Polycarp. Polycarp is the student of John. Irenaeus, we get some of the earliest Christian theology, and his, one of his large books is called Against Heresies that we still have. And so he's taking on the Gnostics. So Irenaeus is quite interesting because he's really, I think, giving us an insight both to what the early false teaching was and to how John specifically addresses this false teaching. This, this I don't know if you've been exposed to any Boltmann or anybody, you know, people reading John in the modern period were saying, oh, John's a Gnostic. It's a complete you know, misunderstanding of what John is doing. 
It's a complete misunderstanding of even the early church's reading of John. John is not influenced by Gnosticism. John is taking on, he's de- de- defeating a Gnostic understanding. 1 John 3, 7 and 9 says, Little children, this is, I'm saying this as in contradistinction from somebody that would say you can be righteous without doing righteousness. Make sure no one deceives you, John says. The one who practice righteousness, practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. This is chapter 3, verse 7 and 9. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Why did Jesus appear? You know, thinking here of the atonement referenced in this first chapter. In 3, he says, the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. He, they're referring to Jesus. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. So in this chapter, the false teachers, and I, I, again, I think you can just come up with a universal rule. What's the sign of somebody who's probably not truly practicing Christianity? This one may hit it a little too close to home. First of all, they can't confess sin. That's going to be the last thing that John John says at the end of this chapter. If somebody can't confess sin, there's something wrong with them. In other words, this, by the way, in M. Scott Peck, The People of the Lie, he says, what's the sign of a narcissist? The first sign of a narcissist is there's someone who can never say, uh, I'm a sinner. And if they can say it, you know, it's a sort of, that they may trivialize. (coughs) The other thing is that these false teachers do not confess Jesus. Uh, In 4.3 he says that. In 2 John he says, those who do not acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is, he says, of the deceiver, the antichrist. So last time we talked about one of the, part of this false teaching is they're going to deny, and I may have said this wrong, I hope I said it right, I thought it right, and that is they're denying the humanity of Jesus. They're affirming the divinity of Jesus. It's an interesting false teaching in a sense. Because soon the false teaching will be flipped around and some will deny the divinity of Jesus. But the earliest false teaching on the part of the Gnostics uh, is they say, oh, Jesus uh, you know, was not truly in the flesh. Um, but John is going to say Christ was manifest in the flesh, which is over and against them who are saying it's not a, a fleshly knowledge. It's not a a truth that we can access. And so, docetism, I, I made this list, docetism, Platonism, Aristotelianism, I think you could just, you could just run down every false teaching and every tendency towards false teaching, and it will always then end in the idea of making God in a realm that is inaccessible, uh, which is a kind of dualism, right? that if God is completely inaccessible to us and, you know, he's up there and we're down there, down here, well, you're talking about a dualism. As Christians, do we believe that's the status of God? 
No, we believe that God has come to us in the flesh in Christ Jesus. And this is, I don't know if you listened to uh, or, or read my blog on mysticism or John and I did a blog on mysticism or, or a podcast. And that is that the, the, what mysticism tends to do is absolutely mystify God, make you know, God completely unapproachable. Uh, well, in Christ, we have access to God. It's not to do away with mystery, but the mystery in the New Testament always comes to us connected to the Logos. It's an un- a mystery that's unfolding. John is going to talk about rebellion then. He, he, has it, he gives it three features. He says, the ruler of this world has led the rebellion. The world in rebellion against God fails to recognize its own rebellion, its own rejection of God, and therefore does not know God's Son, it does not know His Spirit, um, and the Son then is, you know, uh, think here in the Gospel, is not only unrecognized, but persecuted and killed. Uh, and the third thing, the world is in that is in enmity belittles the world from above, or the world that Christ brings. It's hated by it. Christians are going to be hated by the world. Uh, There is an antagonism, but it's not an antagonism between, you know, two cosmic dualisms. It's an eschatological antagonism between two understandings or two worlds. But one of the worlds is not real. One of the worlds is built on darkness and deception. Um, let me let me do a little bit with Irenaeus. Irenaeus describes the Gnostics, and I think this is important. He says they falsify the words of the Lord and become evil interpreters of what has been well said. This is the most, uh, you know, uh, despicable sort of false teaching. You know, there's fault. There's this sort of paganism out there that's false teaching, but this false teaching is an even more dangerous one. The point is, they take scripture, they use the Bible, they talk about Jesus, they claim to be Christians, and yet the whole thing is fake. The whole thing is a fake Christianity. Soren Kierkegaard says that Christianity, in fact, has unleashed the demonic. There is that sense that the false teaching that surrounds Christianity is in many ways more dangerous than just out-and-out paganism because it is more in, you know, in, uh, just an insidious kind of thing. Uh, Irenaeus, he's, and Irenaeus is writing, a, we think, in about 180. Uh, he's defending the fourth gospel in particular, and he says that it's written precisely to answer the dualist or docetic errors of Serinthus. And he goes on to claim that none of the heretics could assent to John 1.14. The word became flesh. So John is saying these things, I think, specifically to counter maybe this specific false teacher. Um, so the 
particular Gnostics that Irenaeus, uh, he says they considered themselves members of the larger Christian community. Uh, but Irenaeus says they're worse than pagans. For pagans at least ascribe first place to the deity who made the universe. But what the Gnostics are saying is there's a series of emanations and there's actually the God that this is the creator who is a lesser God and then there is the higher God. Um, and so the picture is a, a very much a Greek picture of, I don't know if you've ever studied Aristotle or the idea of a concentric series. And of course we're absolutely removed from God or the reality of God who's at the center. Um, so Irenaeus accused the Gnostics of syncretism, that is of, I, I entitled this, you know, religious pluralism. When people start talking about religious pluralism, I think the Gnostics were the first religious pluralists. That is, they're saying, you know, very much like a good Buddhist, well, always, you know, can lead to God. And so they were naming the pagan deities and saying, well, this deity is a kind of mediator in the concentric circles that eventually get to God. Um, and so Irenaeus said the Gnostics claimed that the pagan gods were in fact images of you know the Gnostic eons or circles. Um, at any rate, I think we can read Irenaeus and get some insight to what John is perhaps facing. This false teaching is a severe threat to the church. By the second century, you know, by the time Irenaeus is writing, uh, you can walk into any little town and say, you know, where do the Christians meet? Or you can ask, where do the Gnostics meet? Or the Christian Gnostics. Uh, they would disconnect you know, the what they're doing, they're, the early Gnostic teachings were that you could have, you know, uh, a complete, you know, licentious lifestyle, but still be, compl- uh, be considered righteous. It would disconnect believers from one another, but literally in the second century, it splits. Here is the first split in the church. Um... And so what John is warning about, if you walk in this sort of darkness, you're going to, be, you're going to alienate yourself from, from your brother. And the one who hates his brother is walking on the dark, in the darkness. Would you say that splitting of the church is even an adequate term? Yeah, it's not adequate, right. It, because they're not really splitting the church. Uh, and and is, that, is that what you mean? That in some way there's they're they're creating an alternative. Yeah, it wouldn't necessarily even be the church, but it'd be more of a removal or like a separation, people alienating themselves. Yeah. For a false kind of church. And I'm and I think we we should probably be well acquainted with the gnostics, not because they're so strange and distant, but because precisely they're so familiar and close to us. I'm afraid that we're still surrounded by the Gnostic religion that still goes under the name Christian. Is that too strong? No. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, 
And, and, and we need to say that not just to recognize the false teachers out there, but also recognize the danger that threatens uh, within our, our, our own life. Faith is beginning to get that look like. Uh, <laughs> can I quote you two? Uh, this is Bono. Is it Bono? Don't believe the devil. I don't believe his book. But the truth is not the same without the lies he made up. Don't believe in excess. Success is to give. Don't believe in riches, but you should see where, where I live. I believe. I believe in love. Don't believe in forced entry. Don't believe in rape. But every time she passes by, wild thoughts escape. Don't believe in death row, skid row, or the gangs. Don't believe in the Uzi. It just went off in my hands. I believe. I believe in love. He goes on for it's a it's a wonderful uh, U two song, but I think it's a song that is. I I think he's affirming the idea that's there in John uh, that to believe the lie of the devil is to to in some way to hate your brother, to oppress others, to deal in violence. And love, then, is the, the resolution to that. Uh, first characteristic of the heretics was to say that uh, you can walk in darkness and it doesn't affect. You know, you can, you can. The other thing is they say they're without sin. If we say that we have no sin, John says, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So some would claim that evil could could not harm uh, their enlightened spirits. They claimed to be righteous and did not acknowledge any sin in their lives. And then Jen, John gives us a series of tests. Somebody read for us the the series of if statements. Verse chapter one, verse six. Just read the first if test. If what? If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Then, so, fellowship with him means you can't walk in the darkness. Then the second if test is 1-8. You're doing good, Sherry. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if you're, you're claimed to be without sin, and then the third if test is verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And then the fourth one, and this one is the one I want to leave, I'll stop here. And I'm not saying I know what to do with this, I'm just saying it's here. And we need to do something about it. The, the passage between walking in darkness and claiming it makes no difference and claiming to have no sin whatsoever is to be found, in other words, the middle way between those two things, saying I'm without sin uh, or claiming it doesn't matter, is to be found in the confession of sin. John says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think we need to confess sin. I'm not saying I know how to do that or in what format we need to do that. I don't know if any of you listened to our, Frank and I did a podcast on Monday. 
um, about confession. Not that we're saying we know, you know, how to institute this, other than it's there. I don't know if you've any of you read Bonhoeffer's Life Together. This is the first thing that Bonhoeffer instituted in the seminary, uh, is that they all paired up and with one close friend that they could totally trust, they confessed sin. Bonhoeffer himself did it, even though he was the professor, and he paired up with Bethke. And of course, he and Bethke become lifelong friends. And Beth, <laughs> Bethke's really the one, it's because of Bethke that we know of Bonhoeffer, because he he uh, preserved his manuscripts and saw that they were published. And so I think this is key. This is very important. This is the middle way that John is saying uh, is the confession of sins. All right. Shall we read again verse 6? And Evan, do you want to start with verse 6? Sure. Uh, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Who is him? Uh, in mine, it makes it obvious because it's a capital H and it's Jesus. Okay, not uh, If we say that we have fellowship with Jesus or with Christ. And so, again, the... It may be this is just a tendency, but it's clearly a false teaching that is arising in the first century. Some are saying we can have fellowship with God or with Christ spiritually. And we do that through our interior, you know, ecstatic, Gnostic, you know, experience. Maybe we, if we pray intensely enough, Maybe if we read our Bibles five times a day. Maybe if we meditate. Maybe if we see visions. I don't know. In other words, no, John says very simply, you've got to walk this thing out. You've got to live it out. And you can't walk in the darkness and imagine that you're practicing the truth. The truth is a manner of walking. It's a, way, it's a set of practices. Salvation is a set of practices. My margins I have written, why is fellowship mentioned here? And we've just, in the previous verse, in what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The fellowship is the thing. The koinonia. Your, your devotion tonight said it well. This, is, this should be the most important part of our life is the koinonia fellowship because this is what constitutes who we are. Uh, and the fellowship then that we have together is an inner Trinitarian fellowship. It is a participation in the Trinity. I'm just, I think that's what he's saying, isn't it? You fellowship with us, our fellowship's with the Father. I'm not being too heretical by calling that participation. Jordan, you want to read the next verse? 
But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So, uh, again, I think that, how, what is the work of the atonement? Is it propitiation? There's nothing about propitiation in this verse. But there's, and by propitiation meaning a payment that pays for sin and is in some way disconnected from what we would normally think of as sanctification. But I think John draws those two things together. That the blood of Christ cleanses us as we walk this thing out. We could, I, we could do a whole excursus on light, but I didn't do that. That was tempting. Um, because this is a major motif in John, but it's also a major motif in Scripture. So if you, you know, just look up light, look at all the places. Uh, but of course, the idea of light is several things. It's ha- having to do with a ethic or a morality, but it also has to do with a rev- revelation. So, deception and darkness are undone only as the light penetrates the darkness. And the evidence that that has happened is the way that one walks or what you do uh, in your life. And that then shows itself in the fellowship that we have with one another. So, maybe it would be good to clarify what this verse is saying and what we're saying is believing with our bodies what the difference is between that and a false understanding of um, like saved by works salvation by works yeah that, that salvation by works is that in some way you're doing stuff to attain a future salvation I'm going to do this good stuff and go to heaven when I die. Or I'm going to do this stuff and make myself righteous. And so that's not what we're saying either. But what we're saying is that the uh, practice of salvation is one that immediately bears fruit in our life. In other words, we're not saying, oh, you do these things and you, you escape hell and go to heaven. No, the, the practices are bearing the fruit. They contain the fruit. That loving your brother already contains the fellowship that is salvific. What is salvation? We've actually changed the, the definition here. It's not going to heaven when I die, but it's being joined to the body of Christ and to God and to the fellowship which is certainly inclusive of an ongoing eternal life, but it's an eternal life that is instituted now. So it's not works righteousness in the sense that, you know, this, and this is the confusion in the New Testament, when Paul, is Paul doing something different than James? When James says that, you know, faith without works is dead, and Paul is condemning a works righteousness, how do you reconcile those two things? Well, once you recognize that Paul is talking about works of the law, and he's talking about an ethnic 
you know, circumcision, food laws, uh, that you're not saved because you're a Jew. You're not saved because uh, you're found within uh, ethnic Israel. But you're saved being found in Christ, and part of what it means to be found in Christ is then that you're, even in Paul's language, working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Again, it's not working for salvation, but salvation is a way of walking. Did I get it or not? Did I miss it? We don't love our brother in order to be saved, but we love our brother because we are already saved. Yeah, yeah. We're saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. I think that's it. That it's a, a thing that's immediately accessible to you now. Yeah, it's not something that you're, you're like, you have to do so you'll get rewarded for later, but it's like rewarding. Love, you know. Is its own reward. It's freeing. Yeah. I mean, it may, you know, that the, the, uh, it may get you killed. Or other bad things may happen to you uh, as a result. Um, but nonetheless, it, it is the idea here, you know, what is the deception? The deception is in some way to uh, uh, imagine, you know, all, all of these false teachings, I think you could say they're, they're a system of death denial. That if you deny the connection between flesh and spirit you deny the connection you, know, you go through all that and you can just sum it all up and say it's in a way a death denial but what is meant by death denial it's the denial of the reality of death itself uh, and, and that sums it up I think that's in the end these people are going to say what every good Buddhist would say uh, that death is not a bad thing, that death is a good thing because you shuffle off this mortal coil. Well, no, the uh, Hebraic understanding, the uh, Christian understanding is death is the last enemy. But death is also then a, a, not just something that happens to you at the end of life. Death is, is anti-salvation. Being oriented to death is the opposite of being saved. Being oriented to life is what it means. And so uh, this death orientation is alienating. You know, I don't know if you're getting this idea of the word embodiment. It just means, yeah, that's, that's, what, that's taking the reality of this world in a serious way. If you don't take this reality seriously, I don't know how you can really love anybody. You know, think of Mother Teresa in India. That you don't mess with people's karma by helping them, you know, when they're down and out on the street, because they got to work that karma out. There's works righteousness. There's salvation by works. You got to work out your destiny. And then she, you know, reaches in there and cares for the. She changes people's destinies. We can change people's destinies. We can change our own destiny. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. You, this, the, life is a serious thing. 
I think we, we trivialize it. We imagine that our choices in some way are kind of, they don't matter. Well, no, they do matter. They matter for us and they matter for everybody around us. All right, uh, Jake, you want to read the next one? We're at eight? Yeah. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I, I was reading an old commentator here, and the, you know, the old commentator says, Oh, look here, John's contradicting himself. I don't see, I don't see it as a contradiction. Uh, he's just describing two poles that if you walk in the darkness, that's not saying that you may not fall into sin occasionally. And I think the idea here is that we may not, we cannot be Christians and practice sin. It can't be an orientation. It can't be a manner of walking. Um, but neither can we say that we're free of sin, that we've been made completely righteous, that we've been made completely holy, because then you're, you're committing the opposite. And so the way between those two things is having the humility, the vulnerability, to confess your sin. I don't know how we should do this. I think the, the Catholic confessional is probably not the way to do it. Uh, but I think it some way needs to be instituted in our, in, our, in our lives. And then, Beth, you want to read the next one? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I mean, that's a big deal there. How do you get cleansed from all unrighteousness? Apparently, the willingness to say, you know, to confess sin. And apparently the unwillingness to confess sin leaves us with our unrighteousness. I'm just saying it's here. I mean, I'm just saying that's what John's saying. What do we do with that? I think we probably better institute some form of confession in our life. And then, Andy, you get the, the finale. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Uh, there's no such human being. There's no such creature other than Christ himself. Uh, that That is part of the human condition that we've all sinned. And so to pretend otherwise, to put on a facade, to, you know, this is the whole pride shame thing. Uh, well, you make the word of not, no effect whatsoever. It's of no use to you. Uh, and his word is not in. All right, any comment, question? Uh, Faith and Maisie were having a conversation about do you think that they're doing the best they can? And for me, while like going, you know, you're talking, I'm thinking, oh, this group, this group, you know. And I'm also thinking of certain people where it's like, oh, okay, they may not have it right, but I do think that they're doing the best they can. And that it's a continual growing. But I think the confession of sin is the difference where when people can, like there is that process of growth and they get to a point where they should realize, oh, I should move on from this and accept and confess that what I've been doing and teaching has been wrong. But then there's a very, very like different 
place for whenever we cannot confess our sin. And we can do better than what we have, like, when we've been given. Like, if we can read the Gospels, we can read the Bible and recognize the sin in ourselves, sin, and, like, move forward from it, not only, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes. That we can do better. Yeah. And other people can do better, too. That we can't be complacent about who we are and where we're at. That in some way, we the reality is that you can really change things up uh, with the help of God. That this is what Christianity is about. And it, and it may seem that, you know, I, I was thinking, I, you can think of this on many levels. You can think of it on the individual level. That I've known people that I just thought, this person will never change. I always think at you know the dish factory that I, I can't remember his name. Uh, I thought the last guy in Japan would be that guy that would become a Christian. He became a Christian a year later. His whole family joined the church. Uh, everything changed up for them, and you can just see it happen. You think, well, here's a guy, boy, he's not going anywhere. He's and no, I, I would, I'll never say that. So I think you can talk about it on an individual level. But I think you can also talk about it corporately. And I'm not saying I know how this works out, but we just celebrated Martin Luther King Day. Mm-hmm. Imagine if Martin Luther King had never come along. Mm-hmm. We'd still be a bunch of you know racist bigots. Mm-hmm. Because he made, us, he made a whole nation aware of their racism. You know? And so one guy, I mean, I, I, I think he'd be the last to say he did it by himself. But he was certainly key in changing things up. And so I think that faithful witness to Christ, and that's the way I'd characterize Martin Luther King Jr., that, that he was a faithful witness to Christ. Uh, he never, you know, in the worst, in the nightmare that, you know, he faced, he never turned to violence. He never, you know, he, he just, he, he's a very Johannine Christian. He just continued to preach uh, love, and these people that hated him, uh, he said, "Well, you know, you can't you can't hate them back because they're just ignorant. They can do better." And so I think that we need to recognize that as a fellowship, as a as a group of Christians, we can model, we can be the light, and we can help people do better, including ourselves. I think what's inter- interesting about confession in the way that I've discovered uh, like how, how, it, how it works out. Um, I was always afraid of confessing um, to, to like, you know, a, a brother down the hall or whatever because I felt like if I was to confess, it would be to, uh, I guess, confirm that I'm not like I'm not where I seem to be, so it almost feels like you're taking a step back. Like you say, like you know, we can do better, but uh, you know, in that in, in that instance where where you're still trying to sort that out, it almost feels like confessing would be taking a step backwards. But but really, it allows you to to actually begin to do better because you can get rid of that that shame that's you know kind of that you're struggling with and it's holding you back. You know, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, I don't know. So I thought, yeah, it, it almost seems like it's, uh, 
it doesn't make any sense to confess in order to move forward, but like that's how it, how it actually happens. In some way, it's to it, it it it's the very basis upon which we establish love with our brothers and sisters, because we become become vulnerable. If we pretend like we're, you know, without sin or that we don't need to confess, what we're doing is putting a, it's a kind of false pretense, and so we make ourselves unavailable for other people. Uh, and and by the way, you open yourself up to terrible potential of shame because when they find out well actually you know that's not who you are that you're you're not then you're then you the whole pride shame thing kicks in so by confessing it's always that reality is there i always think of even dietrich bonhoeffer you know uh early you know his whole thing was the what he did on behalf of the jews but early on in his life, one of his, I think it was his sister, who was married to a Jewish man uh, whose father died. And they asked him to do the funeral. And he refused because he was a Jew. And of course, he later, you know, he, he, he admitted this was a terrible sin on his part. But how how could he have moved forward and done the, the things that he did without, first of all, reckoning with his own failure at that point? And so in some way, I think we just have to reckon with her failures. Otherwise, we live with them. They continue to be de- definitive of us. Uh, yeah. I think that we, uh, there's a big emphasis on leadership, too. And so there's a lot of obligation to to be whatever that is, which we probably have to figure out what we think it means to be a leader. And then, and that might be among like brothers and sisters, you know. But then even with, yeah, you just have like this idea of who you're supposed to be, maybe even around non-Christians, like you need to always be an example. Like that, so you have that in your mind. Like I need to be an example, in this way or this way. And so it's, yeah, you feel like you, you're gonna lose any amount of respect if you let someone know that you've done this or not. But. And I think I think the reality is that that sort of pretense is obvious to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that. But when you can, when you really begin to communicate, even with people that are outside the fellowship, is not by being, uh, you know, uh, I can. I'm thinking curse words here. Uh, 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 you know, some sort of saintly, you know, uh, you know, fill in the blank. Uh, but, but. Uh, Holy jerk. Huh? Holy jerk. Holy jerk. Thanks. See. J- Jake is more, you know, his mind runs in purer ways than mine does. <laughs> uh, no, you, you, I think that, that uh, as you open yourself up and talk about your own doubts and struggles, and uh, that uh, I always find it interesting of the, uh, the sermons I've preached, the podcast, you know, the one that people listen to the most is the one I did on passing through atheism. You've got to be an atheist to be a true Christian. The idea being that there's a certain understanding of God that you have to get rid of. But 
And I think that's always true if people understand, oh, I've, I've passed this way too. Uh, I've gone through this too. That it, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a greater reality. And Christianity, I think what we've made of Christianity is something other than, than what it in fact is. What, what Jesus is doing is healing. He's healing us of our diseases. He's curing us. Well, if you if you can't even say what you're what you've been cured of, if you can't diagnose the disease, how can you say you've been cured of it? And so I think that step one is recognize the disease, recognize what the the nature of. Then you can begin to talk about the cure. But I think we don't think of Christianity in terms of that healing process. We think of it as going to heaven or you know something like that. And so it doesn't put us in a position to actually have a conversation with people. It just puts us in a position of being a holy jerk. Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. Uh, you know, kind of an arrogant, prideful. And I think that, I think that your, you know, your point about leadership, I think we put terrible pressure on people in leadership in churches because the, the nature of the church is such that, you know, you can't be vulnerable because there's such pretense that takes place and what you're selling is the image. Mm-hmm. You know, and the preacher is the image that you're selling and the good Christians are the ones that are pretending to, you know, they've got the product. They're saying, you know, they're drinking the Coke and saying, yes, this is it. And they're good salesmen. Uh, and it's just another form of a health and wealth gospel may not be directly health and wealth, but it's, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a success in life. Yeah, I think, I think that, that, that that's not true leadership, and that's not true fellowship.